Cool. So we are in Daniel chapter 5 today, uh, and just as with the last few chapters of Daniel, this chapter is no less kind of riveting and exciting. Uh, You'll see as we read, it's another one of those chapters where you just think, my goodness me, it's got everything. It's got some some humour, it's got some high drama, it's got a king who's in out-and-out rebellion against God, and God, in some dramatic means, uh, speaks to him and grabs his attention. It's got uh, Daniel as this great character of a man who's trusting in God, who's filled with the power of God, who, who's not afraid to speak God's truth to the king. Uh, it's another of those amazing passages. But we're going to approach it very slightly differently today and and that is that our normal habit if you hear regularly you'll know that we we tend to take a passage and we'll we just work our way through verse by verse line by line and say lord we, we want to understand your word and see how it applies to us today but we, we we're still gonna read and unpack the passage okay so don't panic i haven't all of a sudden like decided that we're gonna low our value on the Bible, but we're just going to approach it slightly differently. And that is that rather than than kind of working our way through line by line, we're going to take one large theme, which is the the main theme of this chapter. And that's where we're going to spend our time focusing today. Uh, And so we're going to read together from Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it up and read it from there. Don't just take my word for it that this is what Scripture says. Yeah, but check it out for yourself. Have a Bible, open it up. If you've got it on your phone, that's okay. You can pull it out and open it there. And if you don't, then the words will be on the screen for you to read along as we go. So we are in Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to begin together from verse one, and we'll read the whole way through the chapter, and then we'll begin to talk together about it. So it says this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's colour changed. I'd imagine it might do, right? And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He was effectively in that moment saying, like, they'll be almost on equal standing with me. We're going to get a little bit more into context at the moment, but, but Belshazzar was kind of co-ruling the kingdom with his father. 
who was away at war. And so he says, you're, you're like, you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom, like you'll be like the third wheel in the way this is ruled. Carry on. Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his colour changed and the lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. So she's heard all the fuss and she's like, oh, sort these boys out. <laughs> and she declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your colour change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, or your predecessor, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. And Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards, give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. It's what we read about last week in chapter four. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. In other words, until he was humbled, until he learned that God was God and he was not, however important or powerful he was, it was merely because God had allowed him to be so. We carry on. And you, his son... Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. 
but you have lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of gold, of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. It's not very encouraging, is it, if you're the king? It's like, God's numbered your days. Like, it's over, buddy. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that, that every bit of this was breathed out by you and is, is useful for us, for, for teaching us and training us in righteousness, for showing us what it looks like to live the way you intended, the way you purposed. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this afternoon? Holy Spirit, would you take your word and cause it to take root and bear fruit in our hearts and lives for your glory and for the good of those around us, we ask. Amen. Okay. Well, before we, we dig in, it's helpful, I think, to just get some quick background on what's going on here. Right, because we can read that passage and you think, okay, so there's like Belshazzar's the king, he's ruling, like he's having a crazy wild party feast, drinking wine with all his lords and his wives and his concubines. Uh, he offers worship to a false gods of stone and bronze and precious metals, and then God sends a, a hand that writes a message on the wall that basically says, like, because you've not worshipped me and you've worshipped these false idols instead, like, you're done, game over, buddy. And then the next thing we find, that night he dies or he's killed and there's a foreign king in town. And it's just like, what? So to give ourselves some quick context, we need to understand a good chunk of time has elapsed since the end of chapter 4. The last thing we read about was Nebuchadnezzar praising God after he had been humbled. And, and now we're like probably some, we're not sure exactly how far, but Nebuchadnezzar at this point has been dead for like 23 years. And about 70 years had elapsed since Daniel had been brought into Babylon as a slave after the Babylonians conquered the Israelites. 
So Daniel's now an old guy. And there's a new king on the throne, 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar died. But, but Belshazzar, who we meet, it's not like he's long in the tooth as king. In fact, he's a young guy. He's a young ruler. He's the son of a chap called Nabonidus. And Nabonidus was the fourth on the throne after Nebuchadnezzar, who, bear in mind, had only been dead 23 years. They didn't reign for all that long, it seems, for the most part, in ancient Babylon. They rattled through their kings pretty quickly. It was a kind of cutthroat environment. But Nabonidus, fourth on the throne after Nebuchadnezzar, had, for political reasons, taken for himself the name Nebuchadnezzar as well. It gets kind of confusing. There are three Nebuchadnezzars. This one's Nebuchadnezzar III, whose real name was Nabonidus. And he's still king. He's still king at this point in time. But he's off in a foreign land fighting a war. And he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge of the great city of Babylon. And we join the story with Nabonidus or Nebuchadnezzar III away. Actually, probably by this exact moment in the story, defeated in war. Although his son hadn't got the word about that yet. Message hadn't reached him. And his drunk party animal of a son, Belshazzar, is throwing this ridiculous feast for all his friends. It's, he, he's a young guy who's trying to stamp his authority on Babylon. He's trying to impress his lords and those around him. It's like a show of power. And it was just another night in Babylon, so far as they were concerned. But what they didn't know is that that very night, Babylon would fall to the Persian army. And we kind of get that right at the end, as he's killed. And the Mede-Persian king, Darius, takes the throne in Babylon. Babylon was considered to be an impenetrable city. They prided themselves on the fact that no one was going to get in to the great city of Babylon through the middle of this incredible, deep, walled, fortified city was the river Euphrates, which was great for greenery. <laughs> That's why the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the wonders of the ancient world, as the river Euphrates wound its way through the, the middle of the city. According to historic documents, this impenetrable fortified city had a serious weakness, and, and that was the river Euphrates. Because what the Persians did on this night was they went upstream and they dammed the river Euphrates, and then they just marched in while Belshazzar feasted with his friends and got drunk with his friends. And they marched in straight under the walls on the muddy riverbed of the Euphrates and took the city unopposed. In some ways it's a tragic story and in others actually the first readers of the book of Daniel, it, like it would have made them smile <laughs> because they were their enemies and so they would have laughed as they read this account of Belshazzar partying 
And then as he brings in aged Daniel, and this, this kind of young ruler who's inebriated and then freaked out by the writing on the wall and his knees are knocking and the colours drain from his face and he stands before old Daniel who's in his 80s by this point and he's like trying to look brave and powerful and like he's in control of what's going on and he's like if you can tell me what this is about then like I'll I'll give you purple royal robes and I'll put a chain around your neck and like we're supposed to read this with a sense of like what an idiot like you, you are completely out of control in this situation. God is absolutely sovereign. You're going to lose your throne. You think you're in charge and you are just so far from it. It's untrue. It's supposed to be a kind of slightly dark comedy as we read it. And I think that context helps us understand a little bit of what's going on. It improves our understanding but also our enjoyment of the passage if we have some of the context because it doesn't it's not so weird we get to see this is kind of like a an old school comedy sketch played out that this young drunk king who thinks he's all that is just putting on a face and actually he's completely out of control in contrast to God who is absolutely in control of what's going on and all of that's interesting and all of that helps us to have some historical context and all of that helps us to get some of the humour of the passage but the heart of the message of this chapter is really all about worship and so that's what we're going to zero in on today there's loads we could pull out of this passage we could get into the writing on the wall and the meaning of the words and we could do a deep dive on all of these different things but but the heart of this chapter is about worship about who or what we worship and why and so that's what we're gonna focus on because very early on in the passage we read in verses two to four that Belshazzar had taken things or he, he had taken the things that were created for the worship of God and in his drunken revelry he had used them to worship false gods, idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood. These objects that had been brought from the temple, these cups and things were, were created with one purpose in mind. They were created in the first instance for the glory of God, to be used in the worship of God, the Holy One, the God of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar had taken them, and now Belshazzar brought them out. And instead of using them to worship the God of heaven, used them for his pleasure and for the worship of idols. And as Daniel brings the interpretation to him, he reminds Belshazzar of what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, when he refused to worship God and had sought worship and glory for himself. And he says this to him, we read from verse 22. He says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. This should hopefully be on the PowerPoint 
somewhere, if you can find it, Joseph. So, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. The charge against Belshazzar is a simple one. The charges against Belshazzar is that he knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had sought worship for himself, was proud, and instead of bowing in humble worship of the God of heaven, had sought it for himself and had worshipped false gods, and God had, had had to, through circumstance, forcibly humble Nebuchadnezzar until he came to a point of recognising God, you alone are worthy of worship. And Daniel brings this charge to Belshazzar. He's like, you knew that. You knew it. And yet you didn't follow in your dad's footsteps. Or you did in the worst possible sense. This is like father, like son. You also have not humbled your heart before God, even though you knew Nebuchadnezzar had learned it the hard way, and instead of learning the lesson from him, you've just in your own way, you've continued in your pride and arrogance. You've worshipped idols that can't see or hear or know, instead of worshipping the God in whose hands is your breath. It's like, how crazy do you have to be to do that, right? to worship precious metals that can't do anything or, or provide anything or, or speak or see or hear and to worship them instead of worshipping the creator who's provided the very breath in your lungs at this moment. It's crazy, isn't it, right? You think, like you read it and you think it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do that? And yet the truth is, we're all prone to it. it Maybe in a different way to Belshazzar, but we are. And the, there are two major facets to Daniel's charge against him and to what's going on here. And the first is this. The first is that God alone is worthy of our worship. I just need to know that today. Okay? God alone is worthy of your worship. And the second is that actually you were created to worship God. You were created with the express purpose of giving glory to God. That's why you exist. That's your, your very being, the breath in your lungs, everything about you was created to give glory to God. Let's unpack those two things. The first part of this issue of the problem with Belshazzar was that God is the only one truly worthy of worship. To worship anyone or anything other than him is utterly nonsensical. There is only one who's worthy, the creator, the one who provides the breath in our lungs. And actually the Bible is very clear time and time and time again. 
We read in the Psalms repeatedly, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It's like God really is deserving of our praise. And as such, we also read over and over again in Scripture that he won't share his worship with anyone else. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, we read this. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's God. He's like, I deserve the worship and I'm not going to share it with anyone else. In Exodus 20, verse 4 to 5, we read this from God. He, he commands his people, he instructs them how to live. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, nor on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You've got to say, because I am the one who is alone worthy of your worship, I don't want you to give it to anyone or anything else. When someone gives the worship that rightly belongs to him to something else, God says, that's not right. (laughs) That's wrong. Now, some people might look at this or read passages like that and go, oh, well, that just makes God needy, doesn't it? Huh? They caught you out, Christian, because, like, how can God be good and loving and generous when he says, like, I won't share my glory with anyone else? Or when he says, I'm jealous for your worship. I, won't, I don't want you to worship anyone else. But, but to think that way misses the point completely. It, it fails to see who God really is. So, so for any of us to do that, that would be arrogant. That would be proud. That would be laughable. But, but when you are the one who created all things, who sustains all things by the power of your word, when you're the one in whom all things live and move and have their being, like, who else could be worshipped? Who, who, who are you going to point to that's greater than you to be worshipped? That There is none greater. It would be a complete nonsense for the greatest The transcendent God of heaven, the creator of all things, for him to to say someone else should be worshipped would be ludicrous. There is no one greater to who we could look. And to say that God in wanting our worship is in some way needy or selfish, again, utterly misses the point of who he is. For... He is the one who is consistently and constantly providing for all he has made. He's constantly giving out, sustaining. Like the fact you're breathing right now is testament to the fact that he is sustaining you. That he's providing the breath in your lungs. He's generous beyond measure. Literally everything you see and know around you is a result of his generosity. He is utterly unique. And so to worship a created being or an inanimate object 
in place of him or instead of him is just foolishness, isn't it? Like it doesn't, doesn't even make any sense to do it, but it's also such an insult to God. And that's the issue with these gold and silver cups. It's why God speaks and steps in and ultimately it leads to Belshazzar's judgment and demise. See, these objects, they weren't just any old cups. Yeah? They'd been removed from the temple in the first place, the temple in Jerusalem. They'd been taken by Nebuchadnezzar as a way of saying, your God is puny. Like he couldn't even protect you from mighty Babylon. Ha, ha, ha. And so we're going to take stuff out of the place where you worship him to just rub it in how weak and pathetic he is. That's why he took them. And he put them in the temple of the Babylonian gods to be like, hey, this is how much better our gods are than your god. Ha ha. And now Belshazzar shows complete disregard for the God of heaven. And he takes these cups that were created for the purpose of the glory of God that were created to be used in the worship of God and he used them instead to get drunk, to indulge his appetites and desires and to worship false idols. These objects that were created for the glory of God were now being used for the glory and pleasure of man and the worship of idols. Serious. God takes it seriously. And in a much more profound way than those cups that were used that night at that feast, you were created for the glory of God, for the worship of God. And our challenge is to consider, are we taking the body God has given us that's to be used for his glory and his worship and using it for something else, like just for our glory and our pleasure and the worship of other things. So God created us to know his glory and reflect his glory and to delight in him. He, he created us to be worshippers. And the light of that, it's, it's such a nonsense when we give ourselves to the worship of anyone or anything other than him. So we said, didn't we? Firstly, he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. But secondly, it's also the reason we were made. When you attempt to use something for a purpose other than that which it was designed for, it often doesn't work very well, does it? can be very frustrating. I don't know whether you've ever done that with a tool, perhaps. Guys, maybe your toolbox didn't have the thing that you were after when you were doing some DIY around the house. And maybe you've gone there and you're like, ah, oh, just. And so you, you look in there and you find something else and you think, hey, like I think maybe that could do, the, that could do it. I think I could do it with that. <laughs> Oh, you're in for a world of pain and frustration. When you try and use something for the purpose 
other than that which it was designed or created for, very often you damage that thing, you damage other things, and you get very frustrated in the process. Sometimes you hurt as well. You don't get the best out of that tool, that's for sure. We were created with a purpose. We were created to live according to God's design, to live in obedience to him, to to live for his glory. In other words, to worship him. That's why we're here. And when we don't do that, when we worship other things, when we don't live according to the purpose which we were designed, we end up getting hurt. And we end up hurting others. And we end up broken and frustrated. I don't know if you've noticed that. But the novelist, non-Christian novelist, David Foster Wallace, cottoned on to this truth. And he cottoned on to it too late. And tragically, he committed suicide, actually, in, in 2000. Six, But not long before that, he addressed a group of college students who were graduating, actually about this kind of subject. And he said this to them. He said, you know, everybody worships. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yes, they do, because it's what we were made for. And if we don't worship God, we end up giving ourselves to worshipping other things. Anyway, he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, I would put a finer point on it than he did, but he wasn't a Christian, so he said, is that anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and possessions, if they are where you place meaning in life, then you will never have enough. you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always wind up feeling ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship intellect, being seen as smart, you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, what he understood and what he cottoned onto, not fully, but in part at least, was that we were created to worship God. And when we give ourselves to the pursuit of and worship of other things, when we place our hope and our security and our comfort and our significance and our identity in other things, we're not living the way we were designed and we end up frustrated and broken and hurt and hurting others in the pursuit of satisfaction, in the pursuit of fulfilment, in the desire to have enough. When we worship anyone or anything other than God, it drives us into the ground. 
It fuels anxiety. It puts us on a treadmill of always chasing and never attaining. And in the end, one way or another, what we worship will be our end. But worshipping God, who is transcendent, worshipping God, who is other, who is above it all, brings life, brings freedom, brings meaning, brings purpose, brings hope. In Psalm 115, verse 4 to 8, we read this. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have no mouths, uh, sorry, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear. I love this passage, you just think this is so funny, isn't it? And noses but do not smell. It's like, what use is this thing? Like, <laughs> they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats. Like they can't speak, they can't tell you anything. They're so different to the God of heaven. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. In other words, these other things which we worship, which we pin our hope on, which we pursue in the desire to find significance or meaning or purpose, those who pursue them will end up like them, lifeless. But those who worship the living God, the giver of life, end up fully alive, knowing joy. God's command to worship him is entirely appropriate because he deserves it. He has no rival or equal, but it's also entirely appropriate because it's actually for our good. When God commands us to worship him, it's because he knows it's for our good, because it's what we were designed to do. It's what we were purposed for. When we worship anyone or other thing, anything other than him, ultimately it crushes us. But when we worship God, we find freedom. We find that we're free to truly live. We're actually free to enjoy those other things for what they are, as good gifts from our loving Father. And so I want to invite you this week. I want to invite you this week to find freedom in doing what you were made for. You were made to worship God. I tell you that today, whether you believe that or not, whether you've heard that before or not, you need to hear it. You were created to give God glory, to delight in him. To honour him with your time and treasure and talents. To say, God, everything I've got and everything I am, I know comes from you. Would you just use them for your glory? Would you help me use them to bless others? To take what he's given you and offer it back to him for his glory. To say, everything I am and everything I have, Lord, it's yours. Here I am. Use me for your glory, Lord. Living for you, living according to your ways. I want to line up with your will, not try and expect you to line up with mine. I want to see your work and your will and your purposes accomplished. I, I want that for you guys this week, that you'd be able to say all of those things wholeheartedly.
So we're all looking for something to worship because we were made to worship. My question that I want us all to consider right now, though, is are you living out your purpose? Are you living a life of worship and devotion to God? Are you living for his glory? Or are you trying to live your life out for something else or someone else? I think there are a couple of questions we can ask ourselves that help us work out what we're worshipping. Help us work out where we're placing our security and hope. What we're giving our devotion to. And so I, I want us just in the quiet of this moment to just each consider these questions. To consider how, how would I answer that honestly in this moment? And so I, I want to ask what what are you striving to achieve? And what are you striving to achieve to the point that actually you could potentially burn out on this thing? Are you, you working so hard to get there that actually you could burn out on the way? Another question that can help us work this out. What are you terrified of losing? See, I, I think often the thing that we're placing our hope and security in, the thing that we are in many ways worshipping and giving our devotion to, is the thing that we're most terrified of losing. It's like anything but that. <laughs> like what is that? How would you conclude this sentence? Life wouldn't feel worth living if... Dot, dot, dot. That might be, life wouldn't feel worth living if I lost them or that. Or maybe for you, it's life wouldn't feel worth living if I didn't get or if I never got. I don't know, maybe it's life wouldn't feel worth living if I never got married or if I never got that promotion or if I never got that job or if I never... What is it for you? See, we know the answer to these things. <laughs> I guarantee you've all got stuff when I ask you to finish that sentence. I think our challenge is that those are the things. Those are the things that we're tempted to worship other than God, that we're tempted to give ourselves wholeheartedly to. And so knowing what those things are, I want us to stand now and we're going to come back to worship, but first we're going to pray. Uh, so I'm going to lead us in prayer and I want you to, to just own this for yourself. So if you've got an answer to some of those questions or some of those things that I just asked you to consider. Just own it now and give it to God. So Lord, I, I don't want to be placing my significance or my security in that any longer. I'm coming to you again. I want to worship you. I want to live for your glory, not for those things. I want to live to worship you, not to fulfill those things. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and then we'll come back to worship.